Ahoy crew, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. Today we launch into episode 40 that I am calling a Themistoclean End. This also happens to be the effective end of series two of the podcast, although I will have a bit more news about that and about the path ahead for us at the end of today's episode, so do stick around for that. Before we launch in, today's episode is brought to you by Mike and Pops over at Detroit Axle. This is a 350-employee, family-owned company located in the American automotive capital of Detroit, Michigan. They have over 30 years of experience in the industry, and they're the number one rated retailer and distributor of both remanufactured and new aftermarket auto parts. I looked up their ratings and their reviews, and it was awesome to see that they have number one ratings and great reviews in just about every place you could think of. Places like Amazon, eBay, Google, Facebook, all the other places where ratings are aggregated nowadays. Now, Mike at Detroit Axel shared with me that they don't owe the bankers squat, which I also think is a bit impressive in today's day and age. So, for the good ratings and for the good business model, if you're a mechanic and you do your own auto work or you know someone else who does, Go ahead and take a look at Detroit Axle. Look them up online at DetroitAxle.com. Now, I'm no mechanic in any sense of the word. I'm very far from it. But I have a feeling that if I were, I'd be buying parts from Detroit Axle. They just look like a really top-notch company based on the research that I did online. Given that they have free shipping and great customer service as well, I think they're a great place to check out if you find yourself in need of any auto parts. So one last time here, Detroit Axel, and a big shout out for me personally to say thank you, Mike, for your support of the podcast, and I wish you and Detroit Axel all the best luck in the years to come. Now, on to today's show. We wrapped the last episode by looking at the Battle of Mikali in the spring and summer of 479, the year after the Battle of Salamis. At Mikali, the Persian navy was shattered for a final time, and basically Greece secured her safety from Persia's meddling. Now, we have discussed at various other points in the long conflict between Greece and Persia it really never took the Persians all that long to rebuild their naval strength. So although the navy that they had built up to the point at Mikali was entirely destroyed, the destruction at Mikali probably only secured Greece for the short term still. As we will see today, the specter of Persia's return was always a talking point in Greece, even after their victories at both Salamis and Mycale. With victory at Mycale, Greece had bought herself some time and space for a little while, time to focus on her own needs, rebuilding back at home and the path forward there. Now, in Herodotus and in some other sources from this period, Themistocles isn't really mentioned a whole lot in the near-term aftermath of the Greek victory at Salamis. 
he was, as we've covered previously, a key player. And some would argue he was really the main person responsible for Athenian naval policy, which was itself the backbone of Greece's victory over Persia, in a very large sense anyway. It would seem that after Salamis and Mycale, and Plataea too, if we're being honest, once Greece's safety was apparent, the people and the politicians, in Athens especially, they pushed Themistocles off the scene. But reading some of the ancient sources uh, does also give us the sense that Themistocles may have let his role in the Greek victories that we've outlined, he may have let his uh, part in those victories go to his head a little bit also. And that may have been, to some degree, him asking for the things that happened, as we will outline today. In describing the events that surrounded Themistocles following the conclusion of the war, Plutarch uses the phrase, quote, he made himself hateful to the Allies, unquote. Plutarch uses this to describe Themistocles, and there are really two main reasons here that I can see. The first reason is that following the Greek victory at Salamis in 480, Themistocles hatched a scheme that would have gained Athens a very large degree of power, but, well, to do so, they would have seized that power through an extremely nefarious act. Themistocles wanted to burn the ships of non-Athenian Greek cities in order to secure Athens that naval supremacy, which it would then have with basically no opposition. You might say that Themistocles had dreams of naval empire that would have been founded on the act of destroying the other Greek city-states' navies. He just wanted to turn around and burn the ships, of the Spartan, Corinthian, Aegean sailors who had really barely days before fought right alongside Athens against the fleet of Xerxes and Persia. This is basically sabotage we're talking about here. When Aristides and other Athenian aristocrats found out about this plan, um, they pretty much freaked out. They were, however, able to stymie the plan before Themistocles could bring it into fruition. Aristides the Just aptly summarized this plan as one which, well, one which for Athens, quote, could not be more advantageous, but also more iniquitous. This is the first major reason why Themistocles put himself in a bit of a bind when it came to relations with his uh, native city of Athens and his political standing there. The second reason, one that we briefly alluded to in the last episode, is that Themistocles made a practice of trying to extort money out of cities, um, Greek cities, mind you, following the victory at Salamis. He maybe viewed this as just the just reward owed to Athens, for the cost outlay that they had to put out as they built up a navy to defend the Greek islands and cities from Persia. But the fact remains that once the threat of Persian invasion was in fact gone, or at least gone for a relatively manageable amount of time, 
Once it was gone, the islands and the weaker cities, they had less of a reason to cave to Athenian pressure. They didn't need defending by the fleet of Athens, you might say, at least not for a little while. This is also not to mention the quintessentially Greek back and forth described by Herodotus as he outlines this whole episode in Greek history. When Themistocles came to Andros, which is one of the first places he went to try and extort money out of them, Herodotus says, quote, He presented his demand in these terms. Since the Athenians had come with two great gods, persuasion and necessity, the Andrians certainly had to give Athens money. To this, the Andrians replied that it made sense for Athens to be so great and prosperous, since she had the good fortune that came with useful gods. But the Andrians had come to a point of extreme deficiency in land, and they had two useless gods, poverty and helplessness, gods who apparently wished to remain on their island forever and refused to leave it. I guess Themistocles probably didn't appreciate the reply that he got from Andros there, as witty as it actually is, because he responded to it by laying siege to their island there, although we should note that the siege ultimately did fail. So these were, in my view, two of the big reasons that it seems the reputation of Themistocles in Athens may have taken a hit in the years in the period following victory at Salamis, which meant that he then had to take a step back and maybe not play as big of a role in Athenian politics and in the Greek military strategy planning after he failed in his siege at Andros. His arrogance and his ambition had become pretty apparent, basically. But with victory at Salamis won, his arrogance became more of a liability than it had been previously, where it had been an asset to be wielded against Persia while the war was still ongoing. There was not that positive sheen to things after the threat had departed. The bellicose nature of Themistocles, I think, was recognized by his contemporaries. Uh, much like that comparison that I have made a few times to Churchill, Themistocles was pretty much a necessary wartime leader, uh, even in the lead-up and the planning of war, but his strengths weren't completely suited to the immediate period that followed the protracted war, which ended with Greek victory. My guess is that the political breezes in Athens probably pushed him out of his position of strong influence, probably that summer following Salamis, if we take a look at a lot of the evidence in Herodotus and elsewhere, but we don't know the exact timing. In any event, as we've alluded to several times throughout this series now, Athens fought in the war when Themistocles exerted a lot of his influence. Athens was fighting right alongside Sparta, alongside Corinth and various other city-states. And all of these city-states had traditionally been in their own conflict with Athens and with each other. While there was a degree of unity that still existed amongst all of them, 
Themistocles was kind of pushed to a back seat while the allies still had to get along and while they were cooperating to win their victories at Plataea and at Mycale. But once the Greeks did win those victories, they bought themselves a bit of breathing room and they had to turn their focus back to things at home. Athens had to consider next steps, just like everyone else did. Well, when things were sitting on this footing, the old conflicts with Sparta and with others around them began to concern the Athenians more. Once things shifted from wrapping up a war and trying to tie off loose ends, everybody thought they would have breathing room, they came home, old enmities boiled over, you might say, and with those taking a bit of the spotlight again, Themistocles could come back into his own somewhat. Now, we talked about multiple episodes ago now, prior to the Persian Wars as a whole, that Themistocles was an archon going back even 10, 12 years before the battle at Salamis. A major theme of his first archonship was his focus on building up the sea power of Athens. We've seen this repeatedly, so there's not really a major need to rehash things, I don't think, but we'll just run over it briefly. As part of his early campaign to build up naval power in Athens, Themistocles did focus on the project of building a dedicated naval port for the city. This was Piraeus. It was the site of his building drive. This would move the Athenian naval and commercial ships to this new port and away from the traditional but less protected site of Athenian shipping at the nearby Phaleron, where they used to be. Well, by the time the Persian Wars did finally kick off, the push to build Piraeus and to get her fully fortified, well, things hadn't been completely wrapped up there. During the war, of course, funds and manpower was diverted a bit from building up long-term fortifications and naval buildings, and all the funding went into building up and maintaining the actual navy to defend those things. So when Xerxes and Persia eventually occupied and then sacked the city of Athens, the work had not been completed to fortify the new port. However, in 479, once the war was over and Sparta had returned home to the Peloponnese, Themistocles did come back into his own, and when he was given the chance, he picked up finishing this fortification project that had been put on hold, effectively. Now, Persia had, of course, destroyed the walls that Athens had previously possessed, and they'd probably destroyed some of the work in progress. So there's a sense in which Themistocles was actually able to start from a cleaner slate once he got power again back in Athens. I think it would be worthwhile to briefly cover some of the intrigues that happened behind this building project, but the finished product of the Themistoclean campaign to build up these elements in Athens is interesting on its own, I think. It betrays the biases of Themistocles, and I'm sure that they will not at all surprise you. We read in the work of Thucydides now that the walls of Athens were rebuilt 
that they betray signs of hasty construction. We're talking here about the walls around the city of Athens. Even today, archaeologists can see evidence that the walls around the city were rebuilt using rubble from temples that Xerxes had destroyed, buildings and other aspects of the city that had been destroyed by the ransacking Persian forces. So the walls around the city of Athens were reconstructed using rubble, basically. But the new port at Piraeus got a bit more of the attentive treatment. The walls that protected the harbor, these were built of hewn and fitted stone, not of rubble that was mortared together. The harbor walls were also built thicker and taller. This is, as you might suspect, because Themistocles placed priority on protecting the harbor, and he felt that this would be of the utmost import if any future invasion were to occur. Approach by sea would be easier for any future invasion, according to Themistocles this is, so he focused on fortifying the harbor and then on filling that harbor with more warships. So then, Themistocles, once he did reattain some degree of power in Athens, it seems reasonable that he wanted to rebuild the city walls and the harbor as soon as he could. It's probably safe to assume that the citizens of Athens also desired that same end. I can't imagine them being secure or content living in a city where the walls were only partially standing. This desire to rebuild their defenses seems pretty reasonable to me. But what was reasonable to Athenians had a tendency to be unreasonable, or at least cast as unreasonable, by Sparta and the interests that she tended to pursue. Now, this isn't to say that Sparta was objectively unreasonable, thinking that Athens should maybe be left unfortified, but, well, Sparta's arguments for that option, for that outcome, I think were pretty weak, and they weren't as reasonable as Athens' self-interest in refortifying. It's perhaps not a shock that Sparta's true motive for keeping Athens as an unfortified city was purely selfish. In Sparta's view, Athens already had the naval supremacy, so if they were allowed to refortify their city and their harbor, Athens would just be solidifying her naval supremacy and then rebuilding her land defenses on top of that defenses that would be effective against both Persia and Sparta, should things come to that. When Sparta argued to Athens that maybe Athens should not rebuild the walls, Sparta's ostensible reason for seeking this outcome was that it would give Persia a fortified base to work from if Persia decided to invade Greece a third time and managed to retake the city of Athens. Much like Persia had operated out of the city of Thebes prior to Persia's invasion of Attica, Sparta feared that Persia might return to Greece a third time, would easily retake Athens, and then would focus her attention on invading the Peloponnese once and for all. And I do actually think that this is not an outlandish doubt on the part of Sparta. We've seen how over the course of several invasions, Persia gradually worked her way west, 
taking more territory each time, which during the invasion of Xerxes we saw ended with the destruction of Athens, with the pitched battles at Plataea, and of course the naval battles that we've already covered. If Persia did in fact rebuild her forces and come back for more, well, they might turn their attention on Sparta the third time. But the argument here that this fear of Sparta's should therefore result in taking away all fortified buildings north of Corinth, I think that's where they lose me a little bit. It's a bit of a flimsy and self-serving argument on Sparta's part. Themistocles, of course, knew this, but he knew that Sparta could theoretically march right on up to Athens and enforce this viewpoint at the end of a spear if Sparta really chose to. So, in a milder version of the cunning strategery that we've come to know and love from Themistocles, he had the Spartan ambassadors go back to Sparta. They had come up to Athens to voice their concern about the potential for rebuilding the walls. So Themistocles had them go back to Sparta, and he told them that, oh, I'll, I'll come to Sparta, my own self, and we'll talk over this whole issue at your comfort and luxury at home in Sparta. Now, no sooner had the Spartan ambassadors gotten out of earshot of the city of Athens than the people began a massive effort to raise new fortifications. Thucydides writes that, quote, The whole population of the city was to labor at the wall, the Athenians, their wives and their children, sparing no edifice, private or public, which might be of any use to the work. Now, we don't read this directly in the histories, but I think it's safe to assume that while Themistocles was in Sparta running his redirect, that the people back in Athens were probably rushing to rebuild the city walls. This would make sense because they needed to defend the city itself, where they all lived. Most likely later on, when they had more time, more sound defenses, they were able then to focus on rebuilding the port walls at Piraeus because we already outlined how these were larger. It was a better wall and it was more sturdily constructed to a higher standard. Again, I think this does kind of indicate the priorities that were in the mind of Themistocles and perhaps in a lot of the decision-making power in Athens, not just Themistocles alone. For now, though, let's get back to Themistocles for a little bit. He did indeed go to Sparta, as he said he would, and while there he allowed the people of Athens to hastily rebuild as much of the wall as they could without interference. We read at this point that Themistocles tried to gain time, and he made excuses. He claimed he was waiting for his compatriot Athenian spokesman to get to Sparta so they couldn't start talks because these spokesmen had gotten held up in Athens. He also used a few other delaying tactics, but when the city wall in Athens was close enough to finished that his ruse could no longer really be hidden, he was pretty much forced to address the Spartan assembly and to come clean about the ruse he had pulled over on them. This is kind of the crucial point for me in all of this, too. 
in his speech to the Spartans, where he revealed that Athens would be fortified once again and that they didn't need Sparta's advice or permission to make decisions, Themistocles makes this specific point, uh, which reveals a fair bit about his mindset concerning the future of Athens. He says, quote, When the Athenians thought fit to abandon their city and to embark in their ships, they ventured on that perilous step without consulting Sparta. Close quote. In essence here, Themistocles is making a declaration of the Athenian intent to pursue her own path forward, now that Persia is largely out of the picture. Themistocles sees a future where Athens is free to take advantage of her naval supremacy, and all the opportunities that this supremacy would afford her in comparison with Sparta's reliance on land-based military power and Sparta's relative lack of commercial trade compared to all of the trade and the networks that Athens had in place. Thucydides then makes this whole point a bit more explicit when he's describing the walls that resulted from this whole building campaign in Athens. He describes the hasty construction of the city walls with the use of spolia, which is that destroyed portions of old buildings that we talked about, how they were just mortared together to make a new wall. Thucydides compares this construction to the finishing of the walls of Piraeus, which were built thicker with hewn stones purpose cut. The stones were then sheathed in iron. In highlighting this contrast between the two walls for the two different purposes, he also mentions the famous statement that Themistocles is supposed to have made early in his career. That is, quote, he first ventured to tell them, that is Athens, to stick to the sea and begin to lay the foundations of empire. Themistocles put his uh, words into action by funneling money into construction of a navy, which was then used to defeat the Persians. But now that Persia was gone, Themistocles continued to lay the foundation of empire for as long as he had the influence to be able to do. Thucydides also tells us that uh, Themistocles told his fellow Athenians, quote, to go down into the Piraeus and defy the world with your fleet, if Athens was ever again marched upon, that is. So we've now arrived at a point, basically, where Themistocles had carried out some machinations and had exerted more political pressure to see that the walls were finished that the port at Piraeus was ready to defend Athens's naval interests, and from that point on, Themistocles was going to try to make a possibility for Athens to uh, fulfill her dreams of empire, if possible. Themistocles had at this point basically helped to carry through to completion the rebuilding of the walls and the protection of the new naval port at Piraeus. So from this point forward, he would try to make possible Athens to defy the world with her fleet, to, it seems like, fulfill their dreams of empire so far as they were able. 
And at this stage, it seems like they were closer to fulfilling those dreams than perhaps at any point before. It's a bit remarkable, then, that at this point in the story, we begin to find fewer and fewer mentions of the role that Themistocles played in the story. There are a few general points we can highlight, but uh, we'll now begin to get a bit more into discussion of Athenian policies in general terms before we finally get through that to a point where specific figures and personalities begin to again take the spotlight. There are two major things that we know that Themistocles was responsible for in this time frame. They are both developments that, as you would guess, served to focus Athens on that drive to build a naval empire. But beyond the broad strokes, we don't know a whole lot of the specifics of what Themistocles was involved in or when exactly this stuff took place, just that it was in the years following Salamis and the victory over Persia. One of these things is that Diodorus writes that, quote, Themistocles persuaded the people each year to construct and add 20 triremes to the fleet that they already possessed, and he also persuaded them to remove the tax upon medics, which are foreign residents, and artisans, in order that great crowds of people might stream into the city from every quarter and that the Athenians might easily procure labor for a great number of crafts. So this is basically both things in one quote here then. And these are both seem like pretty reasonable and decent policies to implement if you're trying to both build out a new fleet or to, you know, bolster a pretty substantial already existing fleet, but ensure that it will last over a course of time if that's one of your goals, but your other goal is to continue growing and expanding your empire, well, in order to build and maintain a fleet and to expand your empire, you need funds to make that expansion happen. That's where his tax break to merchants, to artisans, and to foreigners comes in. This would effectively encourage merchants to come to Athens to make Athens their home base, it would incentivize them to make Athens even more of a trade hub than it already was. Of course, the central location of Athens in the Greek world more broadly didn't hurt, but if they could profit from that location and maybe benefit from the tax breaks, this would of course benefit Athens as a city and as a budding empire. So I really think this is some wise policy by Themistocles here. Of course, we don't know if he was the only one behind it, but that is how Diodorus paints the picture for us. We have now run through basically how Themistocles continued to make naval expansion a central pillar of his policy in Athens. By the time that Athens had truly finished rebuilding her walls and had gotten Sparta out of the picture there, well, we're nearing the winter after they had ended the Persian War. This is getting about two years after the victory at Salamis, then. Still, once the sailing season in the Aegean kicked off at this time, about a year and a half, two years after Salamis, the Greek cities here felt compelled to range far to the east and to make sure that they continued to maintain order in their sphere and on the edges of it also. 
This sphere would, of course, extend to Ionia, where the Greeks had colonized a fair number of cities there, a place that was the site of many events early on in the uh, chain of dominoes that eventually led to Persia sacking Athens. We have already discussed in prior episodes how Sparta and Athens had different views about how things should be approached in this post-Persia world, we could call it. Although this is a bit of a misnomer because, as we said early on, Persia was certainly still a factor, just a different type of factor than it had once been. We have also discussed how in the final phases of the Persian War, Sparta was the official military leader for all the campaigns. I view this as kind of a shared fiction on the part of the Greek allies, which is, in the naval sphere, Sparta was uh, not at all preeminent in the Greek world. But when it came to the lines of battle, Spartan commanders took the primary places of honor, and they were assigned the supreme command of the naval forces. I call it a shared fiction because all the Greeks understood the reality, which was that Athens was the backbone and had been the driving force of Greek naval power, and that, depending on which histories you subscribe to, Themistocles was kind of manipulating events and orchestrating the shadow policy and strategy behind the scenes. So, we now arrive at the summer of 478 BCE, where the shared fiction is stretched a bit and ultimately broken. I said that as 478 reached the sailing season, the Allied fleet sailed east, and they were again here under Spartan leadership. But at this time, the role of that naval leadership was given to a man named Pausanias. He had led the Spartans and the Greek land forces during the Battle of Plataea, so he did at least have a reputation and came by the leadership rightly, although he may not have had the naval resume to back up that aspect of things. Sailing east, then, Sparta had 20 ships, while the Athenian contingent of 30 ships was led by Aristides the Just, a man who had vied with Themistocles to take a leading role in Athenian policy, well, not long before this, as we've seen. Aristides himself had even been ostracized from Athens during the power struggles prior to Salamis, but he had returned during the war and he had proven himself to be an indispensable leader. Under the official leadership of Pausanias, the Allied fleet sailed east to Cyprus, where their forces subdued most of the island, which we can assume the island at this time was probably still subject to at least partial Persian control, or, you know, at the very least, Persian influence. Despite rooting out that Persian influence on the island of Cyprus, it was later during this campaign that rumors began to rumble about the Spartan leader. From Cyprus, the Allies then moved to Byzantium, which was controlled by Persia directly. The Allied fleet won this city away from Persia, but no sooner had they liberated the city then Pausanias was forced from his position as allied commander. Thucydides writes that this occurred 
because the Ionians and the newly liberated people of Byzantium, presumably the people of Cyprus as well, I think, all of these disliked Pausanias and accused him of leading violence against them. The accusation said that, quote, his conduct seemed more like that of a despot than of a general. Now, it's highly probable that he was actually a violent person to some degree, and later accusations down the line brought against Pausanias claimed that he also had a secret alliance with Xerxes and with Persia, that he was basically a Manchurian candidate, working for Persia's interests despite the fact that he held a leading role in both Spartan and Greek policy more broadly. However, we can't forget here that throughout the war, and then in the cleanup stages after it, Athenian and Spartan preferences and interests often did not quite align. It seems logical to presume that Pausanias was probably a crooked general, but it also seems logical to presume that Athens did everything in its power to amplify that reputation and to maybe exaggerate it in the hopes that he would be pushed out as the Allied commander. That theory being what it may, there isn't much dispute that Pausanias was indeed a bit dictatorial as a commander, that he wasn't a great person, that he may have been a little corrupt, and since the Athenians happened to also just dislike him because he was arrogant, they managed to foment the displeasure against him by the Ionians, which then forced Sparta to recall Pausanias back home, where he was investigated but ultimately acquitted. Sparta acquitted their commander, but this unfolding event was just about enough to kind of shift the balance of allegiances in the Greek world. Sparta attempted to send a replacement commander back out to Ionia to assume command of the naval fleet and the forces, but when he arrived there, he found that the allies and that the Ionians were no longer inclined to concede the command to him. This replacement commander went back to Sparta, and at that point, the Spartans chose to kind of just stay out of matters in Ionia. Now, Thucydides says that Sparta here made a calculated decision, that they were satisfied with the competence of Athens, and that they felt that the relationships at issue were still strong, that they had no quarrel with Athens or with the other Greek cities despite this whole incident. Thucydides tells us that Sparta was also tired of spending time and resources worrying about Persia and doing so by active engagement so far away from the Peloponnese. Now, whether that is actually the true explanation for why they were happy to stay out of Ionia here, whatever their motivations, there is no question that this whole development, this whole incident, kind of marks a power shift in the Greek world, and that's because it left Athens completely free to put her naval power into action to lead the remaining allies involved in the region over there, which kind of allowed them to dictate a lot of the policy. It's basically here in my mind that in a sense the Delian League is born. Now, I feel like the Delian League and all that comes with it 
the structure, aims, dynamics. They're all issues that we should tackle next time when we truly shift our focus uh, from looking backward to the Persian War and all that kind of led up to its conclusion. We'll then kind of shift our focus forward a little bit to consider more so how the formation of this new league, the Delian League of Alliances, how this impacts the future of Athens and Sparta and everything that kind of follows on from that. Given that the Delian League is in large part a naval defense alliance, well, that makes it pretty prime material for the podcast as a whole, so definitely don't worry, we are going to cover it. For today, I would like to officially bring Series 2 to a close by following the man who has been the lead character in our unfolding events. Themistocles managed to carry out a few more policy victories after the war, as we've seen already today. These included the rebuilding of the walls at Athens, the fortification of Piraeus, the naval harbor, then the economic and tax reforms that helped Athens quickly rebuild her naval strength. But once these reforms were in effect, once the walls and the port were rebuilt, it does seem that Themistocles' influence begins to wane, and this is possible because it seems that he's become so powerful in the Athenian perception, his stature has grown so large, that in the pure democracy that Athens had, well, Themistocles had pretty much won himself more enemies than he was able to fend off. Themistocles did, of course, have enemies within Athenian politics and social circles. Some of this discussion has come up previously. I think we mentioned last time, or in a recent past episode, how Aristides revealed to the public that Themistocles was planning to burn the fleets of rival Greek cities, just so that Athens could kind of ensure her naval dominance after Salamis. Aristides did manage to stop this plot before Themistocles could carry it out, but it's implied by Plutarch that once word got out about this attempted plot, that so many of the public in Athens were repulsed by the unjust plan that Themistocles had hatched and tried to carry out, that public opinion of him grew pretty negative, more so than it was already. His reputation with other Greek cities also plunged dramatically, and not only because of the diversion campaign that he ran against Sparta when Athens was rebuilding her walls. That whole event probably contributed, but Themistocles also harmed his reputation by trying to pressure Greek islands for money. We've discussed this already also. Finally, then, he ticked off Sparta more than it already was ticked off by interfering in their plans to gain control of the Greek alliance. Sparta had proposed the policy of excluding any city that had not actively participated in the war against Persia. They didn't want any city who didn't have skin in the game to help make the policy for the Greek alliance going forward, basically. Themistocles, though, pretty wisely perceived that if this policy were put into place, that Sparta would pretty much control the alliance that Athens would be the only real check against Spartan power. 
Themistocles then managed to use his powers of oration one last time to convince the alliance delegates that any willing Greek city-state should be allowed to participate in the alliance going forward, whether they participated in the war against Persia or not. This then allowed larger cities like Thebes, Argos, and Thessaly to take part in the alliance, even though they hadn't done much during the war. This, of course, then diluted the power that Sparta was able to wield in the alliance policy-making. Sparta responded to this by throwing their support behind an Athenian politician who basically would be the rival against Themistocles for influence in Athens. This was a man named Simon. Simon is going to factor pretty heavily in our story moving forward, but today this is pretty much the only place that he bears mention. Now, as the effervescence of Themistocles in Athens began to wane, we read in Plutarch that it began to spiral downward after a certain point. The speed, the rate, perhaps increased, you could say. Themistocles began to receive enough detraction that his only recourse was to allude to achievements he had accomplished in the past. In doing this, Plutarch tells us that Themistocles, quote, became tiresome thereby. The people got tired of hearing about how great he had once been. He didn't then do himself any favors when he built a temple to Artemis near his home in Athens. And at this temple, he gave Artemis the epithet Aristobuli. This means that he was calling Artemis of good counsel or the best counselor. This was a trait of the goddess. But by alluding to this trait at a temple that he built for the goddess, a temple that he funded, Themistocles was pretty ham-fistedly patting himself on the back for the role he had played in saving Greece. He's pretty much implying here that he had contributed the best counsel of any Greek who had taken part in the Greco-Persian Wars, and to uh, associate that quality with his own name he would wedge it in by attaching it to the goddess that had supposedly given that counsel to Themistocles. Clearly, Themistocles did play a substantial role in the Greek defense against Persia, in the naval policy, and in the battles. But now that we're several years removed from their victory and things have begun to take off back towards peacetime policy, if you will, the self-aggrandizement had grown a bit tiresome, as we said, and this seems to be enough that it pushed public sentiment over the edge. Re-enter here the famous, or maybe you want to call it infamous, Athenian practice of ostracism. No doubt most or all of you are familiar with the practice of ostracism, so really just a simple summary is needed here. The Athenian democracy had developed this practice where each year the assembly was given the chance to vote on an ostracism. If they voted to hold one, then pretty much each citizen could cast a single vote for the man who they personally wished would be exiled from the city of Athens for a period of 10 years. The name, the term ostracism, it's derived from the method by which the citizens of Athens held these votes. Citizens would take an ostraca, 
which is a potsherd, basically. And on this potsherd, this ostraca, they would scratch the name of the man who they wanted to be removed from the city. These ostraca were then all put in urns and counted up at the end of the voting. This is pretty much the ancient paperless version of using scratch paper to cast votes and then put them all in a hat, then pull them out and tally them up at the end. After this whole process, whichever Athenian's name showed up on the most ostraca, this man was expelled from the city for ten years. We said that Aristides the Just had been ostracized at one point, but through emergency powers that were available during the war, he was recalled from his ostracism early. However, in the year 472, this is eight years after the battle at Salamis, the name that showed up on the most ostraca after the vote was Themistocles. Now, Plutarch indicates that this practice of ostracism, it wasn't necessarily a referendum on the most popular politician or the one who at least had the most power but may also have been the most despised by a majority of Athenian citizens. Ostracism also was not always because the ostracized party had done something wrong per se. Indeed, Plutarch says about this practice in general, and this applies to the case of Themistocles, he writes, quote, Ostracism was not a penalty, but a way of pacifying and alleviating the jealousy which delights to humble the eminent, breathing out its malice into this disfranchisement. For Themistocles was visited with ostracism to curtail his dignity and preeminence, as the people were wont to do in the case of all whom they thought to have oppressive power, and to be incommensurate with true democratic equality. The writer Diodorus echoes this description. He says that each citizen voted to ostracize, quote, the man who, in his opinion, had the greatest power to destroy the democracy. I'm not sure how accurate these descriptions are. I'm sure that that was the motivation in some cases, but I have a feeling that in a pure democratic governmental system, it also is the case that just a simple majority of citizens could push someone out if that person's popularity went south with just a small majority of citizens. It was used for multiple reasons over the course of its existence. So the debate here about this Athenian practice of ostracism, especially comparing it to modern mechanisms that protect constitutional order in modern forms of government, I think it's an intriguing but kind of wholly unrelated debate to what we're actually aiming to cover on the podcast here. It's relevant to current politics and government in the world. I unfortunately wound up reading two entire journal articles about this whole subject when I stumbled on them, comparing ostracism in ancient Greece to modern political forms. But for our purposes, we're going to shy away from that today. It's enough to note that Themistocles did in fact see his name appear on the majority of the ostraca that were cast that day. And after the vote was tallied, he had 10 days to vacate Athens. Under the law, he had to remain absent from the city for 10 years. After this time, he was allowed to return if he wanted to. 
I mentioned that this had happened to Aristides prior, and the assembly recalled him during the war, but in most cases that did not happen, and the ostracized party was absent for the 10-year duration. There were no exigent circumstances that allowed Themistocles that kind of loophole. So, seeing that Themistocles has been ostracized from his home city, it's at this point that we kind of begin the conclusion of the narrative that we have been following about Themistocles for quite some time now. After his ostracism, Themistocles first took up residence in Argos, a city uh, with whom he had some ties thanks to decisions and alliances that had been forged during and after the Persian War. While at Argos, the Spartans caught wind that Themistocles had been ostracized, and they decided to try and ride the sentiment against him. They wanted to push an investigation into uh, actions he had taken previously. An investigation that, you know, maybe would have resulted in the trial and possibly in the death of Themistocles. Remember earlier, we briefly talked about how the Spartan general Pausanias had been removed from his post as the allied commander after the Ionians and other Greeks uh, said that he was egotistical and that he was in league with Xerxes in Persia. Well, once Themistocles was ostracized, Sparta revived that whole prior event, and Sparta claimed that Themistocles too was in league secretly with Xerxes. And that because of this, because he was a traitor, he had to be brought back to Athens where he would stand trial for his treasonous actions. Supposedly, Pausanias was actually committing treason and working with Persia, and he had invited Themistocles to join him in this plot. The story goes, though, that Themistocles refused that offer, then Pausanias was put to death by Sparta for an unrelated incident that we haven't gotten into. And then the story goes that after he was put to death, Sparta found letters and documents in his home that had the names of Themistocles and other Persian representatives both side by side, enough of a tie that Sparta tried to use this as evidence to say that Themistocles was involved in a pro-Persian plot against Greece. Sparta tried to uh, weave these claims against Themistocles, but being the wily operator that he had always been, he knew he had enough sense to know that the winds were against him and that it would be in his interest to skip town. He then did just that. He fled from Argos to northern Greece, where he took refuge with the Milosians. But in doing this, he, of course, gave ammunition to his accusers, and he had accusers mainly among Sparta, but then he had a healthy contingent in Athens of people who just were rivals against him. His accusers unsurprisingly claimed that his flight away from Argos and to the north was in fact proof that he did have things to hide and that the act of fleeing confirmed that he was actually a traitor. And that's always speculative, I think, in a lot of disputes. Enemies will cast any action you take one way or the other as some kind of proof of the thing they've accused you of. I don't know that that really tells us much in this case. 
However, after these accusations kind of heated up, Themistocles was declared a traitor officially by those who held power in Athens and they seized all of his property in the city. So basically, he has no chance to go back to Athens even after his ostracism runs its course. This is a really remarkable turn of events uh, in my mind for the man who, probably more than any other single individual, the man who had made it possible for Greece to even have a chance of defeating the Persians. Now, Themistocles didn't stay long with the Melosians either. Once Sparta got wind that he was holed up there, they, of course, showed up. They threatened the Melosians who were harboring Themistocles. And, you know, that's a pretty grave threat if the Spartans show up at your doorstep and they are threatening to levy war against you if you don't do what they want. However, here the king of the Melosians did not cave, and uh, Themistocles lived to fight another day. He, of course, prudently left the city that was harboring him. He decamped for a place where the Spartans might not be quite so quick to follow. He fled the city by night, and traveling only in the dark, as fugitives tend to do, Themistocles did manage to get to the Macedonian port city of Pydna. This is all according to the account of Thucydides. In his version of history, there is a slightly harrowing narrative detour as Themistocles tries to arrive at his ultimate destination, which we will get to here in a moment. In this detour, we read that Themistocles embarks on a merchant ship at Pydna, and he's traveling in disguise here because he is a fugitive, like we've said, he's trying to get away. I would assume that this is probably an easier thing to accomplish back in this ancient time than it might be in today's era of surveillance and uh, cameras all over the place. But at the same time, Themistocles was arguably one of the most well-known personages of the Greek world, even back in this ancient time. Still, it seems that he was okay on this merchant vessel, and that nobody discerned his true identity or the reason that he was sailing east. That is, however, until a storm blew the ship off course. It had to take refuge on the Aegean island of Naxos, and apparently at this same island there were other ships from Athens at the very same moment laying siege to that island. Now, I, I can see it being reasonable that Themistocles could hide on a merchant vessel and try to flee east, but when that vessel was forced right into the arms of the Athenian naval fleet, you can see how that prevents a bit of a problem. I think it's a little bit ironic, too, that that's where Themistocles would wind up, um, given his legacy. In the end here, Themistocles manages to pull off yet another of his stunts in order to escape. He somehow convinces the master of the merchant ship that he is on that he was actually the great Themistocles. Nobody, it seems, knew him by looks, so he had to persuade this master of the merchant ship who he was and the significance of that fact. Once he convinced the merchant ship captain of this, um, it was pretty clear that if the ship was captured by the Athenian navy, Themistocles would be in a bit of a bind. 
he used this to his advantage. He almost threatens the merchant ship captain here and says that if the Athenian Navy captures us, I'm going to lie through my teeth and I'm going to tell the Athenians that you were actually in on the plot, that you knew who I was, that you were willing to take me aboard and to help me get out of Dodge, but that you bribed me for a lot of money to do this. If Themistocles were successful in telling this story, um, the merchant captain would be screwed pretty much. So here, Themistocles manages to turn the situation to his advantage again, and he pressures a rather unwitting actor to do Themistocles' bidding. But as you see, it, it was accomplished through some kind of selfish and suspect methods. It's another scheme cooked up by Themistocles, though, ultimately, and it helps him manage to slip away at Naxos. It's at this point where he gets away that some of the ancient accounts, the ancient histories, diverge from one another in their telling. Although, in the grand scheme, they all agree about the ultimate destination, where Themistocles was heading. They agree that the man who had engineered a pivotal victory against Persia was now fleeing straight to the Persian king. And we assume that he decided to go there because really it's the only place that he could be safe from the vendettas that were coming at him from Sparta, from his enemies in Athens. It's only in Persia that all of those actors wouldn't continue to pursue him. Plutarch includes a, a somewhat comical story here that could well be true, but it doesn't appear in all of the ancient histories. The story goes that supposedly once Themistocles made landfall in Asia Minor, he did still have to somehow figure out how to get from the coast all the way to a point where he could actually convince the Persian king or an emissary of his identity and then that he could give Persia something that was worthy of Persia providing him, in turn, sanctuary. Remember, Themistocles was the figurehead of Greek victory, Apparently there was a bounty on his head that had been issued by the Persian king. So it sounds almost like a subplot from Assassin's Creed Odyssey or, or something like that here. Themistocles had to come up with a way to evade any bounty hunters that might still be on the lookout for him. And he had to evade their gaze but while somehow still making contact with the Persian king, but in a way that wouldn't wind up with his capture or death. Pretty interesting stuff. Apparently the best scheme that Themistocles and his wealthy acquaintances could come up with was to exploit the fact that royal Persian concubines were somewhat closely guarded in the Persian society. These concubines seem to have traveled in covered wagons, wagons with curtains around them or carriers with curtains around them, stuff to that effect. So the point is that no one could really see them while they were inside of these covered conveyances. It's a bit comical to me to think about the great Athenian naval leader at this point in his life, reduced to hiding in a concubine's travel wagon. But I do recall the good book saying something about how the mighty are brought low, and I feel like that's a repeated narrative that we see played out over and over throughout all of history. This is just another example. The ultimate details vary again here depending on the source that you consult. 
whether he delivered his message via letter. Some say it came via a trusted messenger. Some say that he didn't manage to do so until he in person got an audience with the Persian king. The ultimate outcome, though, is that he got his message to Persia's reigning king, or something along these lines. The ultimate outcome, though, is that he got a message like this to Persia's reigning king, or something to this effect, at least. In the words of Thucydides, it went something like this. Quote, I, Themistocles, am come to you, who did your house more harm than any of the Hellenes when I was compelled to defend myself against your father's invasion, harm, however, far surpassed by the good that I did him during his retreat, which brought no danger for me, but much for him. For the past, you owe me a good turn. For the present, able to do you great service, I am here, pursued by the Hellenes for my friendship for you. However, I desire a year's grace when I shall be able to declare in person the objects of my coming. So there's a fair amount to unpack here, actually, and not all of it's relevant to maritime history, but it's a bit of a poetic way to call back to the hour of Themistocles' great naval victory, and I think it's worth doing as we wrap up our look at his life here. In that quote above, we see that he managed to parlay an event that supposedly took place at Salamis years before into some part of, you know, the justification why Artaxerxes should grant him shelter in Persia. Now, obviously, Artaxerxes, the Persian king at this time, he was going to be puffing himself up by allowing the architect of Persia's greatest naval defeat to later come groveling to him for protection. So there's that whole element there where just allowing Themistocles to exist and to kind of abase himself, that boosts the reputation of the Persian king. But we'll leave that aside. In that quote, Themistocles was calling back to a supposed event that took place after the Battle of Salamis had basically concluded. I honestly can't remember if we talked about this one back when we were discussing the actual Battle of Salamis. But even if we didn't, we have seen in other places how Themistocles had a habit of sending messages to his enemies that were intended to mislead them, but in ways that were plausible and in ways that had kind of multiple benefits to them such that Themistocles could later on down the road choose to spin those messages one way or the other, depending on the circumstance that had developed, always in a way that led to some type of benefit for Themistocles personally, no matter who it might benefit more broadly outside that. Supposedly after the Greeks had won the battle at Salamis, Themistocles sent his servant back over to the Persian camp, to warn them that they ought to escape while they still had the chance. There is disagreement in the ancient sources about whether Themistocles sent this warning out of sincere desire to help Persia escape, which is what would have been argued by the Spartans and by those who said that Themistocles had Persian sympathies. But there is the opposite view that Themistocles sent this message 
trying to lull the Persians into taking that action, that Themistocles was falsely sincere, hoping that this message would kind of prod Persia to actually flee Greece because that's what Themistocles actually wanted. It's what the Greek allies wanted, to get Persia out of the vicinity. The short story in my estimation is that Themistocles probably did want to go on fighting Persia after the victory at Salamis. He wanted to continue taking the fight to them. He was pushing for destruction of Persia's boat bridge, remember, that they had to build in order to get their forces into Europe. He did push for that bridge to be destroyed after the victory at Salamis, but there was you know, heavy disagreement in the Allied camp about whether that was the wise route to take or not too. Once he realized that he probably wouldn't win that debate, you know, in my estimate, he backed off the pressure, he realized that it was unpopular, and he sent this warning message to Xerxes. We can't know the ultimate reason, but it wound up in the Persians retreating quickly. The consensus view is that Themistocles sent this message because, as we said, the majority of the Greeks did want Persia out of Greece. He just realized that he was in the minority, and he didn't want to push the issue. He's assumed to have played the part of a surreptitious informer. Um, it's kind of some reverse psychology here. It is possible that he never actually wanted to sever the boat bridge and to try and land that decisive blow against the Persians. I'm going to try to explain this all a little bit here. Apologies if it's tough to follow. So what we have to keep in mind here is that we are now 15 years after Salamis as Themistocles arrives in the Persian palace, talking to the Persian king, trying to tell him why Persia should provide sanctuary to Themistocles. He's in exile, he's seeking sanctuary, and in this situation it seems to have been customary for people who sought favors from the Persian king that they would claim that they had done some favor to the Persian king or to his family at some point in the past. It's in this context that Themistocles is making the conveniently unverifiable claim that at a council of the Greek commanders after Salamis, 15 years prior, there he had successfully opposed the suggestion that Greece should destroy the boat bridge. Here, he's basically saying to the Persian king, I helped you guys get out of Greece without suffering further loss, and I actually had to kind of be deceitful within my own camp to achieve that end. We should note, however, that any claim by Themistocles to have done the Persians some service doesn't seem to be very plausible. Uh, there's a good article that describes this. I'll link to it in the show notes. And the author in this article says that, quote, Doubtless what really counted with Artaxerxes in acceding to Themistocles' request at this time, it wasn't any dubious claim of past services Themistocles provided or optimistic promises for the future. It was the sheer propaganda value of the defection of the famous Themistocles at a time here when Persian morale in the eastern Mediterranean uh, was a bit lower than it had ever been before. So, in essence, we're left with a bit of a historical debate and somewhat of a mystery when it comes to 
Themistocles here. He, he arrives in the Persian camp. He's seeking sanctuary. And he presents this case to the Persian king, which is open to the interpretation that maybe Themistocles did in fact help Persia in the past, help them escape Greece after the Battle of Salamis. It's hard to see what motivation he would have had to do that at that time. So I, I think it's rather unlikely that he did actually do that in order to help Persia. It's more likely that he's just re-spinning events in the past in a way that will look good to the Persian king because the Persian king has really no way to verify or to check this claim. So it's on this debate about whether Themistocles did help the Persians or whether he didn't, it's on this debate that a lot of the future legacy of Themistocles will hinge, and maybe we'll see this more in the future. But right now, I find it interesting to note that after Themistocles died, his family, who had gone into exile with him, they returned to Greece. And there, his legacy becomes a political debate between those who support him, I guess, but really those who support a continuation of his policy, who are then debating the detractors of Themistocles, who fall on the other side of the political spectrum. Whether Themistocles gave aid to Persia after Salamis or not actually becomes a pillar in how all of these people viewed him and his legacy back then, and then it has continued all the way through historical analysis and interpretation probably because the stage was set so early at this point in Greek history. So basically, it's noteworthy to me that the legacy of Themistocles becomes almost a litmus test for where politicians and leaders stood on issues um, that became central to schisms and debates within the Greek world over the decades following the death of Themistocles. Hopefully we will cover this all in a way that maybe makes more sense in series three of the podcast. The simplest way to describe it here is that you have a camp of leaders like Simon, we mentioned earlier. These fall into a camp of anti-Themistocles, quote, conservative politicians in the classical sense. And then you have leaders in the other camp like Pericles, who I'm sure you recognize the name. And these leaders fall into a pro-Themistocles radical camp, if you will. These legacies and all of this discussion, of course, morphs over time. They're molded to fit political winds and positions depending on when people are debating them. That is, again, just a constant throughout human history. Now, full disclosure here, my views about the motives and the actions of Themistocles, the interpretation that seems most plausible to me, I probably tend to fall more in the camp of what historians call the radical pro-Themistocles camp, that of Pericles. They would have argued that he was not trying to aid Persia after Salamis. Maybe he moderated his position based on internal politics within Greece, but that it had nothing to do with trying to help Persia or whatnot. That element came in later when his legacy was trying to be uh, tarred by his political opponents, basically. That's my opinion. We'll never know for sure. Ultimately, Themistocles was in fact given sanctuary in Persia after he danced this dance with Artaxerxes, and he basically allowed the Persian machine 
to spin a convenient twisting of the past up into a propaganda piece, really. That being the case, in my view, Themistocles becomes a somewhat tragic character in this sense. Despite his achievements and the integral role that he played in Greek history, he was a wily operator in the political and social scenes of Athens. He was an ambitious and arrogant man. He always sought to mold the circumstances to his own benefit, and this eventually caught up to him, as we see here. It winds up with him being a supplicant in the court of a Persian king, a Persian king whose father, Themistocles, had orchestrated a glorious victory against. Now, the ancient sources don't have a whole lot else to say about this character, Themistocles, other than reference to his ultimate end. We will end today with the portrayal given by Plutarch, although, as always, different sources tend to put a slightly different spin on the story. The year here is 459 BCE, so we estimate that Themistocles lived in exile in Persia for about five or six years. Plutarch writes here, quote, But when Egypt revolted with Athenian aid, and Hellenic triremes sailed up as far as Cyprus and Cilicia, and Simon's mastery of the sea forced the king to resist the efforts of the Hellenes and to hinder their hostile growth. And when at last forces began to be moved, and generals were dispatched hither and thither, and messages came down to Themistocles saying that the king commanded him to make good his promises by applying himself to the Hellenic problem, then neither embittered by anything like anger against his former fellow-citizens, nor lifted up by the great honor and power he was to have in the war, but possibly thinking his task not even approachable, both because Hellas had other great generals at the time, and especially because Simon was so marvelously successful in his campaigns, yet most of all out of regard for the reputation of his own achievements, and the trophies of those early days, having decided that his best course was to put a fitting end to his life, he made a sacrifice to the gods, then called his friends together, gave them a farewell clasp of his hand, and, as the current story goes, drank bull's blood, or as some say, took a quick poison, and so died in Magnesia in the 65th year of his life, most of which had been spent in political leadership. They say that the king, on learning the cause and the manner of his death, admired the man yet more, and continued to treat his friends and kindred with kindness. A bit of a long passage there, but it is the conclusion to the story of Themistocles, basically. In the passage, uh, Plutarch references, or he uses the phrase, as the current story goes. So in using that phrase, it's notable that the specifics Plutarch had access to, the sources, are far from concrete. Still, we do know from other historical records that Simon, after the ostracism of Themistocles, Simon quickly rose to become a top naval commander in the Athenian navy. His name, as I said earlier, will take center stage for us in future episodes. But as the story goes, as Plutarch says, 
Themistocles chose to end his own life with dignity rather than help Persia lead yet another invasion of Greece. The bull's blood version of his demise, um, I think, is pretty clearly fanciful. It might be rooted in the ancient belief that drinking bull's blood was lethal, um, but we know from the scientific method now that it actually isn't lethal. It was maybe just an urban legend or a superstition that was tied by Plutarch into this history, but it seems impossible, basically. The poison aspect of the story implying that Themistocles committed suicide, but honorific suicide by taking poison, it seems implausible too, but there's no real proof for or against it. It basically comes down to the historian's interpretation about what seems reasonable. I tend to view it as reasonable that the version in Thucydides is most accurate, and uh, this version has Themistocles simply dying of natural causes as he is in Persia, but while this talk of another war is ramping up. It has been pointed out in support here that the sons and family of Themistocles returned to Athens in the years after his death. They would, of course, have had a clear interest in promoting a narrative that cast Themistocles as an Athenian hero with a dramatic and heroic end to his life. So perhaps those who wanted to cement Themistocles' legacy as heroic brought in this element to the story that he committed suicide in order to not help the Persians take up arms against Athens and against Greece once again. It's all just speculation at this point, though. What we do know is that Themistocles met his end far from his home city of Athens, and in the Greek way of thinking, Athens was basically his home country, not just his home city. Now, I was wanting to wrap up our discussion of Themistocles with a short retrospective look at his contributions, at the naval legacy that he um, left to Athens in the broader scope. But uh, as I continue to do, that got a bit out of hand. It turned into what will be an episode all its own. I did get a hold recently of a really great book that covers this topic and economics in ancient Athens, ancient Greece as connected to naval policy and all of this. So that book, I think, is going to turn into a great supplemental episode that will cover a lot of these topics and be a retrospective and kind of bridge into our next series. So, today's episode is the official and technical end of our second series of episodes. We've now followed the arc of Greek history all the way through the conclusion of the Persian Wars and the death of Themistocles. As I said, I'm writing that retrospective where we'll cover things from a higher level. I'll incorporate some thoughts there about the Greek economy, ship technology, how these intersected with the um, policy of Themistocles, I think it'll be a good summary to wrap things up, to be a good bridge. For now, though, we are going to leave Greece in the wake of her victory over Persia, but also in the uncertain times that saw the populace of Athens ostracize the man that might have done more than any other single man to help save Greece, and Athens in particular, from destruction by Persia. As we wrap up here then today, I would like to cover just a few housekeeping items to close, and then I'm going to sign off. 
First up is a question that I have gotten I don't know how many times now, and I should apologize at the outset for the lack of engagement on this question. It's the question of where the heck have I and the podcast been in 2020? We're deep into 2021 now at this point. As I'm sure you're aware by now, uh, there was a pandemic that kind of swept the globe. Fundamentally, that is at the root of at least half of the reason of where I've been. Because of that and the way that it affected everything, my day job kicked into overdrive and turned into more than a day job for a while. Uh, As counterintuitive as it seems to some people, going to full-time remote work actually wound up sucking up so much more of my time than a job in an office actually did. Took me a while to figure that out and try to process why, but that is what happened. Over the course of time, uh, that has gotten to be a bit more manageable. It's gotten back more to a reasonable footing compared to what it was. I hope it stays that way. It's definitely been a learning experience for me and for a huge contingent of all of us out there, I know. It's going to be interesting to see how things continue to evolve over the course of time here in the future. All that aside, combine that with the fact that I bought a house last year as well in the summertime. It's a house where I have spent months doing some self-renovation work. Then we moved in, been doing more projects and renovation after we moved. Uh, The pandemic has been kind of just a mental strain all of its own combined with the day job exhaustion. I think you get the idea there for a lot of it. I simply did not have the mental, physical energy reserves to devote to the podcast here. 2020 was pretty much the year from hell in a lot of respects. It hasn't affected me quite so much on a personal level, but living in the Twin Cities in Minnesota has also been a bit of a doozy just given the events that have taken place here, the events that have become symbols of movements to protest police brutality and racial violence in America, nobody could have seen those things taking center stage quite how much they have, but I'm glad that they have, honestly. It's just been a little bizarre to live almost at the center of what has become symbolic for those movements. Those things, of course, weigh a bit heavy. They've continued to do so, and I hope that there's positive progress with those things going forward. But factor that into everything else, and I've really just had to take a step back to try to keep my mental health intact as far as possible, and other things have just become more of a focus on the day-to-day aspect. I do hope you'll forgive me for relegating the podcast like I've done this past year. I'll just leave it at that for now. But please do know that I greatly appreciate the support that all of you continue to voice. I greatly appreciate the messages and contacts from those of you who have checked in over the past months. I'm sure there are some of you who I have not yet even responded to, but I will make an effort to do that once this episode goes out. I fully recognize, too, that this time has been rough for all of us, all of you out there who are listening. And I know that a consistent podcast can be a sense of personal comfort to a lot of you who find the topic interesting and who have invested time and attention listening to what I've put out there in the past. So I hope that 
I'll be able to provide something more regular in that regard as we move forward. But let me know what you think and reach out if you have any thoughts on all of this stuff. I'm always open to, to chat. Enough about me. The last item today that I want to share is a really awesome book that I think a few of you might want to check out. Given how sea shanties so and rather unexpectedly took off on social media in the past recent months, I think this book is timely. It's really great. Sea shanties were already great before they took off on uh, TikTok, right? But this book might be of more interest to you if you've gotten any particular shanties stuck in your head thanks to those videos, or if you want to know more about where they come from and why they are what they are, I guess. So the book is called Sailor Song, The Shanties and Ballads of the High Seas. It was written by Jerry Smith, who hails from Dublin, but he has an academic career rooted in Liverpool, where the connection to sea shanties comes in, I would suspect. Now, this book, the first thing I loved about it right off is how beautifully it is illustrated. The cover and throughout the entire book, the illustrations are great. They are almost alone enough of a reason to try to snag a copy of the book, but then the subject material, the shanties, are of course central stage. There's a brief and, you know, pretty spot-on and concise history of sea shanties to start the book, to outline their origin, their purpose, the way they're used, how they have evolved, and why they're significant. But then after this opening section, the author dives into examples of famous and often sung shanties from the Anglophone world in particular. I think it's great each shanty has a musical notation, and then it has the lyrics included. So the author acknowledges that shanties are a particularly malleable form of song, but I think it's cool to have estimates about their popular form, or a most popular form for each shanty just in case you want to try to give them a go yourself if you can read music. But the lyrics are, are the meat of it, I think. There are 40 sea shanties covered in the book. Each one has a brief description and kind of a history to outline references in the song. Also some discussion about how the song would have been used in practice. This is going to depend on like the tempo with which the song was sung, the subject matter of the shanty. Remember, sea shanties were often sung when sailors were hauling lines or um, when they were doing other types of labor on the ship, depending where that was, to help give them a sense of timing. Since lines and other components on ships are interconnected and they often required more than one set of hands to manipulate them to get the work done, a sense of timing became important. I think it's interesting, too, since we're talking about ancient history all the time right now still, going back even to ancient maritime history, we recall that the act of rowing, for instance, on a galley or on a trireme, keeping these numerous sets of oars in time was accomplished by the use of flutes or other instruments in places and various times, even chants and songs to keep a rhythm so sea shanties do in fact have a, a very long history. The book then wraps up by looking at 10 ballads and songs from later decades that are still rooted in the sea shanties that were a mainstay of the Age of Sail. 
some of these later songs even extend to look at modern rock and roll songs that are probably the most recognizable vestiges of actual sail ship sea shanties. Songs like Maggie May. I always think of that because it's the little outtake that John Lennon sings on the Let It Be album. There's a few other sea shanties that make it into the catalog of English punk legends, the Sex Pistols. So this book does a good job of covering a wide range of history, but keeping it entertaining still. It's a short book, but again, it's super entertaining. It's really timely and apt if you're wanting to put some historical knowledge behind any of the sea shanties that have been stuck in your head from seeing them online. From the decks of ships and the lips of sailors straight to the bedrooms of tech-savvy folks in the 21st century, it's definitely something I didn't predict and I think something that nobody predicted, but I'm definitely here for it. This book is a great companion to it as well, so check it out. The title is Sailor Song by Jerry Smith. The best place to get a copy, I would say, uh, especially the one with the latest edition that has all of the amazing illustrations, is to get that new edition through the British Library. That's where I got my copy of the book. I know they have them listed for sale on their website, and the uh, shipping and fulfillment is pretty solid. So definitely check that out. I will put a link on today's episode description and on the website's show notes for today's episode. So then, after this rather lengthy return episode, we are at a wrap, and I'm really glad to be back up and running. Again, thank you for your patience and your understanding. I have maintained all along, I'm just a one-man show here, trying to learn about all of the subject material as we cover it, then produce all the scripts and episodes at the same time, and then, uh, in my spare time, trying to stay sane just with life in general. It has been a bit of a tall task throughout the past year, but I'm halfway vaccinated now, I'm almost to full vaccination, which is great, and I'm ready to get the ball rolling once again on the podcast. Hopefully the home projects let up soon. Get the ball rolling, maybe that's a bad metaphor. We'll go with get the sails unfurled, get the deck scrubbed, if we're going to keep to a maritime metaphor as maybe we should. So, until next time, crew, fair winds and following seas, thank you for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>